Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. In the latter part of the 14th century, people in England were angry. An unfair taxation, the Black Death, and a lack of workers' rights caused the general public to be in anguish over their future. The teenage king, Richard II, was being used as a conduit for other high-ranking officials in mellifluous ways, and the public had had enough. It was time for things to change, and an army of the common people was being assembled. Today on Macabre London, we uncover part two of the Peasants' Revolt. and welcome back to the second part of this two-part episode. I will be giving you a little recap in a moment so you can get up to speed, but if you're new around here, then hi, my name's Nikki, and I make shows about all sorts of strange and macabre history, so if that sounds like your sort of thing, then hit subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. And if you're not new around here, then welcome back, old fiend. Nice to see you again. In our last episode, we saw how the peasants, or as they were known back then, the rustics, came to act upon the poll tax imposed upon them. A riot broke out in Brentwood in Essex when tax collectors came to recoup their losses. When one man, Thomas Baker, stood up for the villagers saying they wouldn't be paying a penny more to the government, the clerks tried to arrest him and a scuffle ensued. Little did they realise the villagers had planned for this situation and were armed with tools the tax clerks had once tried to take from them. Six of the king's men paid with their heads, and the rest retreated back to London after almost being stoned to death by the rock-pelting rustics. The battle had temporarily been won. However, this was just one village. Across the whole of England, workers were being struck with the unfair tax, and collectors were aggressive, unruly, and taking away people's livelihoods giving them no other option but to fight. Meanwhile, the king and his men were back in London, living the life of Riley off the back of their taxes, whilst the rustics were working themselves to the bone. 
This was the final straw, and across the country, an army of the common men and women was starting to form. Where those in power had demanded money, the rebels demanded blood. This was set to be a violent and angry nationwide riot. Picking up where we left off last time, we're heading back to Brentwood. To remind you, the King's men have just fled, there are six heads on spikes, and the rustics are feeling pretty confident that they've just secured their place in the history books. The news from Essex spread across the towns and made its way across the Thames down to Kent. The heroic nature of the rustics in Brentwood had a knock-on effect and emboldened other downtrodden villagers to take action. Firstly, to show their anger with those that helped to impose the tax, the gangs decided they would see if they could hunt down those responsible and just have an entirely non-violent quiet word. Robert Hales, the Lord High Treasurer, owned a home in Kent, and so this was the first place they went. However, the rebels were disappointed to find he wasn't home when they visited, as he was in London. So they went in, threw his belongings into the street for the gang to pick through, and then they torched the place. After this small act of arson, and pretty pleased this was all going quite well, the rebels from various villages got together and began to think about their plan of action and what to do next. In some sort of medieval brainstorming session, the rustics worked out what their end goal was and worked backward in order to achieve this. What did they want? No taxes! And how would they get that? By destroying the records held by landowners and monasteries. This was not a very catchy protest chant, but give them a break, this was probably the first time one had been invented. In order to make sure the serfs' names were struck from the tax records and to abolish their own servitude, they had to find them and destroy them. Back before computer records, these tax registers were kept in the households which the peasants worked for, or alternatively, the monasteries that held the wards of the area. If the rustics could get their hands on these important documents and obliterate them, then they would be freed from their obligations. A man named Abel Kerr, who, much like Thomas Baker in Brentwood, was highly opposed to the taxes, decided he would gather a band of villagers together to retrieve and burn the records, which confirmed their serfdom and tax dodging. It took just a few days for Abel to gather together men and women from across the surrounding villages of Kent, and to coordinate a plan. The people of Kent would march upon Lesness Abbey near Erith, destroy the tax records, and demand the abbot grant them impunity from any punishment, or else they would take his head. Abel and his men were successful in their plight, and all over Kent, further pockets of motivated mobs descended on landlords, tax clerks and lawyers to demand exemption and protection. If the people refused, they attacked them and their property, and in some instances, took their heads. At one point in Kent, things got so violent that villagers were collecting and then carrying heads from institution to institution, official to official, to show how serious they were about their cause and the ramifications if they didn't sympathise with their plight. But the violence wasn't all directed towards those enforcing the tax, it was also used to persuade other rustics to join their cause. If fellow villagers threatened to side with the taxmen and to report their fellow countrymen, then they were soon beaten into submission or their property destroyed. The violence whipped up by the mob was now being twisted into a reason to settle old scores and an excuse to get rid of those in villages who didn't align with the rebels' beliefs. 
As the violence swept through the surrounding villages outside of London, those in the capital were only just catching on to what may be headed their way. The king and his court were just starting to hear rumblings from the countryside about the unruly behaviour from the southeast of the country, but considered that Kent and Essex were a long way away and it would take days to get to London on foot and even on horseback. What was happening in those outlying villages was clearly not a threat to the king and his men, as it would take significant resources for them to reach London, which they expected wasn't on the cards. Small bands of rowdy rioters would be easily intercepted before they caused a problem to the capital, and even if they did, they would be sent back home or arrested. What the officials had underestimated was that the plight of the peasants was snowballing, and their everyman army was rapidly growing. The peasants were becoming tactical and planning their next moves, and they had most definitely set their sights on the capital. A few days earlier, a preacher by the name of John Ball had been broken out of prison, along with a few other tax protesters, by a group of rustics. John had been imprisoned numerous times before, as he had an ethos and a style of preaching that the Archbishop Simon Sudbury didn't like. John believed in socialism before that was even a thing, and thought that the way the rustics were being treated was incredibly unfair. He was opposed to serfdom and the top-down oppression of the common people, and he wasn't afraid to let people know via his sermons, which attracted huge crowds. Now free and able to preach to a captive and engaged audience, John only helped to whip the rustics up and joined the slowly progressing army, helping to spread the word and convincing many in villages that God wouldn't approve of the penny-pinching ways of Sudbury, Gaunt and Hales. Which sounds like an expensive firm of lawyers now I've come to think of it. In Rochester in Kent, a mob had surrounded the castle, demanding that a prisoner who was residing inside be released. Robert Belling, who had been arrested a few days earlier, was captured and imprisoned as an escaped serf, and this caused outrage by not only those from the village, but those in the surrounding area that had heard the story. A gang which grew hour by hour set up camp outside the castle, asking that Robert be released from the prison, or else they would break in and do it themselves. Those on the inside of the prison walls happened to agree with the peasants' message, being peasants themselves, and after a short while threw open the castle gates. The rustics got their man, Robert, and several other prisoners convicted of crimes against their employers out of the prison basement, and they too joined the march on London. In an organised advance upon the capital, armies of rustics from Essex and Kent began to move at the same time towards London. Now, you may be wondering how men and women who were peasants and therefore not educated managed to communicate with each other when they were illiterate. Well, the rustics weren't as stupid as the higher-ups may have thought they were, underestimating their intelligence with deadly consequences. Many of the people involved in the peasants' uprising weren't just farm workers and woodcutters and people you would have expected in the Middle Ages to not be particularly well-educated. They also had the support of the middling workers who were better educated, but also not particularly well-paid and also subject to the taxes. In the Middle Ages with village life, it often transpired that a moderate amount of education was circulated to children and adults alike in return for labour. Serfs who belonged to monasteries were educated by boys training to become priests so they could practice their teaching skills and if any children were born under serfdom, 
they could be allowed to be educated by those that owned them. This meant the peasants had enough education between them to communicate via coded letters, which would mean nothing to the king's men if they were intercepted, but meant everything to those organising the procession to London. Now organised and ready to go, the outlying villagers were ready to make their way towards the capital. During this time, a man emerged as the leader of the peasants. He was a fellow countryman by the name of Watt Tyler. Not much is known about him and why he was chosen as the leader of the rebellion, but from what we can ascertain from the records, he was brave, stoic and sensible. As you could probably guess from his name, he was a roofer, and from somewhere in either Kent or Essex. Now there is a story that has been told about his rise to become the leader of the peasants, but I'm not entirely sure if this is particularly reliable, so do take this with a pinch of salt. Watt was enraged when tax collectors came knocking at his home, asking for the unpaid taxes. In order to assess the monies owed, they had to ascertain who was in the household. All people over the age of 15 had to pay the tax, but this roughly translated to anyone who was past puberty. When tax collectors asked about his daughter, who was 13, he said she wasn't old enough to be charged. The tax collectors didn't believe Watt, and so they grabbed the girl and lifted her skirt to see if she had been through puberty. This assault on his daughter caused Watt to beat one of the men to a pulp, and the other fled for his life. Now, as I said, I'm not sure if this story is entirely true, but I can see how that tale told to little groups of villagers who may have also suffered the same injustices would cement Watt as a man of valour and a no-nonsense leader. One of the first things Watt did in his new role was to lead people to Canterbury in search of Simon Sudbury, the Archbishop. Again, they just wanted to have a quiet word, just a little chat. No one was going to get hurt or anything. On arrival in Canterbury, about 4,000 rebels stormed the cathedral during Mass and interrupted the service. They ransacked the place looking for Sudbury, but the same thing happened as when they went looking for Robert Hales. The Archbishop was in London. As a consequence of his absence, the same thing happened to Sudbury's home, as did to Hales. Possessions were taken and distributed to the crowd, and the place set alight, but the anarchy didn't end there. When authorities in Canterbury failed to side with the rebels and to destroy tax and surf records, three of them were beheaded. The houses of those opposed to the rebels' plight were also torched, and many more people and villagers who had anything to do with imposing the taxes were also threatened with violence, with many properties ransacked looking for identifying papers. As the mood started to intensify, the rustics took a moment to group and to work out what to do next. With both Hales and Sudbury in the capital, the rebels had no other option but to go there to find them. But they still needed to protect their own villages from the king's knights, which would no doubt be descending upon them as soon as they got wind of what had been going on. The 4,000-strong army that had marched on the cathedral were dispersed and put in position to protect their villages, but 500 people headed onwards to London. Watt and John Ball drummed up support along the way, and as they went from village to village, town to town, the procession of angry country folk grew in numbers. If officials were encountered or knights tried to intercept them, they fought them, captured them and stole their horses to ride onwards. 
By this time, the king had got word that the murmurations of violence from a few days earlier had now grown into a full-blown systematic takedown of those that imposed the taxes upon the rustics. It was fairly obvious it wouldn't be long before the rebels would make good on their word with his own officials, and something had to be done to preserve his place at the top of the food chain. The rebels were contacted by the king's messengers and asked to meet at Blackheath, in what is today the southeast of London, but back then was more of a thoroughfare towards the city. In anticipation of the king's arrival, rustics from all over London and the surrounding areas arrived. In total, about 2.5% of the population assembled on Blackheath. At other inroads into the capital, similar shanty towns popped up, bristling with angry peasants. The rustics were coming, and they were closing in on the capital. If something wasn't done soon, the king and his men would have nowhere to hide. To begin with, messengers were sent to the little pop-up towns, asking the rustics to disperse and go home, or they would suffer the consequences. Knowing they had the advantage of numbers, the rebels ignored this and demanded the king come to meet them, so they could talk out their differences. To try and alleviate the conflict, the king said he would speak to his subjects at Blackheath, but his advisers knew that with such a vast rebel army, they wouldn't stand a chance. Instead, a sensible decision was made to sail down the Thames on a boat to where the rustics could gather, so they could speak with the angry army, but not be rushed by them. In the wait for the king to arrive, the rebel army on Blackheath were treated to a sermon from John Ball. He reminded the rustics that the men that set the taxes were their equals, and that God created everyone alike. This only helped in reinforcing the message to overthrow those in charge, and so when the king sailed down the Thames to meet them on the riverbanks, they were ready to speak their minds. The king's advisers arrived on a few different boats and positioned themselves far enough away that they couldn't be shot at by archers or have things pelted at them. They then shouted to the rustics to tell them firstly to go home. This obviously didn't have any effect at all and the men and women stood staring awkwardly at the king on his boat as he bobbed around on the river. Relenting, the authorities asked the rebels what they wanted and why they were acting like this. A shouting match ensued of demands, but the main request was that 17 of the king's men, the majority of which were on the boats behind him, be handed over so they could be reprimanded for the taxes, imprisonments of those avoiding the taxes, and the imposition of serfdom. Rather interestingly, the king was keen to go and speak to the rebels on land, as he felt he would be safe. After all, the rustics were well aware that he himself wasn't really responsible for the poll tax, it was his clingers-on. His advisers didn't allow him to leave the boats, as if they did, the rustics would definitely climb on board and take the 17 men they wanted. Retreating back up the Thames to hide within the safety of the Tower of London, the king left the peasants on the banks of the river. Of course, with nothing having been resolved, the rebels continued into London. As the meeting with the king had been highly disappointing and pointless, they began to attack the capital. Their first targets were to liberate prisoners from all of the city's prisons. With so many people on their side, there were no real barriers to entry to the city. The portcullises were opened willingly at the city gates, and London Bridge was left undefended for the rebels to cross with sympathy for the plight. Once inside the city walls, the rebels were free to wreak havoc. 
They went to the courts of law and dragged out lawyers that had passed sentences and imprisoned their fellow tax dodgers, and they executed them. They liberated goods from authorities' homes and distributed the wealth. They also continued to torch and burn the establishments, which were pillars of oppression for the common people. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Amongst the fight for the plight, however, there were some nefarious pockets of wrongdoers which bloomed within the resistance. Pickpockets and scammers took advantage of the marauders during their breaks, cheating them out of money, and others began looting the homes of those that weren't on the list of targets. But worst of all, they used the revolt as a guise for xenophobia, attacking Flemish immigrants who suffered the same treatment as the lawmakers did of being beheaded. As the king hid in the Tower of London, his uncle, John of Gaunt, was the next target for the rustics. Out of everyone, he was probably the most hated of all the men involved in the imposition of the poll tax, and had he been in town, the rebels would have torn him limb from limb. But as he was now somewhere in Scotland, doing God knows what, his palace was targeted. Again, seeking no resistance to their plans, the walls were breached, trophies were taken, and the grandiose building was reduced to ruins within hours. By this time, the king and his advisers were worried that England would soon be overrun by the rebels. The revolt had swept its way across the country, and even though the majority of the violence and destruction was now focused on London, the whole of the country experienced some kind of uprising from their serfs, even if it was on a small scale. With mounting pressure to end the rioting, Richard was surrounded by people who were fearing for their own lives, making any decision they made a cowardly one to save their own necks. Knowing he was somewhat protected as the rebels knew the teenager wasn't entirely responsible, he agreed to meet with the peasants, but this time there would be no protection from the Thames. This time he would go on land. At Mile End, as the name suggests, a mile outside of the city walls, a large camp of rustics were using this as a base, and it was here Richard would arrange to make an appearance and have an audience with the commoners. When the king arrived, he was met by an enormous crowd of peasants. Around 100,000 rustics arrived for their chance to meet the king. Just to give you a rough idea of how many people that is, that's the equivalent of filling the Royal Albert Hall to maximum capacity over 20 times. Once the king had arrived, the atmosphere was tense and foreboding. At any moment, the rustics could rush the king and his woefully small army, 
and behead the lot of them, but this tactic wouldn't result in them getting what they wanted. So instead, they decided to set out a list of demands. They had just a few demands, but if they were agreed to by the king, it would free the common folk and change the landscape of England forever. Firstly, they wanted an end to serfdom and to be freed of any ties to landowners. Secondly, they wanted to be able to sell their produce and services freely without having to pay a premium to the parish or be taxed upon it. Thirdly, they wanted rent to be standardised across the country, so nobody could take advantage of them. And finally, the king would have to agree that any person who participated in the revolt wasn't to be sanctioned, punished or fined. These four demands, simple enough to the rustics, would have huge ramifications on the king and his court. After all, the people that would suffer, in inverted commas, as a result of the changes, would be his court. However, if the changes weren't agreed to, the king and his men would most definitely be rushed by the baying crowd and beheaded. To appease the situation, the king agreed to all four of the peasants' demands, but the common folk were no fools. They knew that the king's word may be good now, but by the time he returned to the safety of the tower and the rebels had dispersed, it would be very easy for him to say the four points were never agreed to. So, to make sure they were cemented, the king had to sign a charter confirming he would indeed exact the changes. With the demands agreed to, the king rode back to London. By this time, Richard was well aware, in order to regain his position at the top of the food chain, he would have to exact the deposition of the men who were most hated by the rustics. Simon Sudbury, the archbishop, and Robert Hales, the head treasurer, now had bounties on their heads, and the king wasn't opposed to seeing those debts paid. Even though he didn't outright say both men should be executed, his actions didn't condemn it either. Also, if Sudbury and Hales paid with their lives and satiated the bloodlust of the rustics, this may mean that by the time John of Gaunt had returned to London, the rioting would have died down and his crimes would be forgotten. When the peasants followed the king back to London, the gates to the tower had been thrown open to the advancing army. They knew what they had to do and the manhunt was on. They filled the tower and sniffed out Sudbury and Hales. As the rustics filled the fort, Sudbury was spotted trying to escape by a woman who raised the alarm and chased him with a gang of several others. By this time he'd made it to a boat, and she and several others grabbed him and dragged him out. Robert Hales was also found hiding in the tower, and he too was dragged before the baying crowd. Once captured, the terrified men were led to Tower Hill, the site of all high-profile public executions at the time. Both Sudbury and Hales were beheaded, with Sudbury's death being the most brutal. He was hacked at eight times before his head came off, and when it did, it was shoved onto a pole and taken to London Bridge to be displayed, alongside Hales's noggin as well. With both men dead and the king having agreed to the demands, the rebellion was over, and of course, everyone could go home to their new lives. Except this is the medieval times, and so of course that wouldn't go smoothly. However, King Richard's appeasement of the rustics did work to disperse some of them. People began travelling back home, and what was an angry and formidable army a few days before was simmering down. But 
quite a large amount of rustics still remained in the capital, wary the king would go back on his word if they left. To prove the king was serious about the demands of the people, he commissioned several monks to create the charters that would pass into British law. But this wasn't enough for the most determined of the rebels and their leader, Wat Tyler, who requested once more that the king meet with them. Watt and the rest of the rebels still had several demands which weren't part of the four committed to the charters, and if these further requests weren't adhered to, the rioting in London would continue. The king agreed to meet Tyler and the rustics in Smithfield, just outside of the city walls, but by this time only around 400 rebels remained, and the king took along a 200-strong army with him. As both armies arrived, Watt made his way to the fore and addressed the king in an informal manner and shook his hand. Still to this day, royals have a strict code of conduct when a commoner, sorry, member of the public, introduces themselves to them. So this casual introduction would have irked the king's men and set them on guard. Watt requested a few more demands from the king, which surpassed the demands of the already written charters. Now Sudbury was dead, they wanted the next archbishop to be the man that had provided their religious consort throughout the revolt, John Ball. He requested that the king be allowed to stay on the throne, but that any other royals be deposed, and that the positions of the men they'd executed not be reinstated, with the exception of the archbishop. He also proposed that now that serfdom had been abolished, that the money freed as a result from the landowners and the monasteries be distributed equally amongst those which had rightfully earned it. Whilst he was delivering these requests, Watt played with his knife idly and walked toward the king atop his horse in a casual but non-threatening manner. Awaiting his response, the army became nervous and started to move toward Tyler. The rustics sensed what was about to happen, and they too began advancing. The king agreed to all of the rustics' demands, fearing that if he didn't, they would be overrun. Nobody dared make the first move, but if this had been that bit in Pulp Fiction, it was about to all end with a metaphorical pop-tart. Nobody really knows what happened next, but the mayor of London galloped towards Watt and plunged a knife into his neck. Wounded, he tried to turn his horse to flee, but he only got a few spaces before he fell. He was then stabbed again by another of the king's men. The rustic army was now livid at the underhanded techniques shown by the king's men, and they drew their weapons ready to fight. They held steady, and in an act of bravery, or maybe stupidity, the king galloped towards the crowd, shouting for them to join him in heading to Clerkenwell. Strangely, the peasants, without their leader to guide them, blindly followed the king. The walk helped to calm the baying mob, and they weirdly left the king alone. Meanwhile, the fallen Watt, who was bleeding profusely from his stab wounds, had been picked up and taken to the local abbey, which doubled as a hospital. The monks inside treated his wounds and tried to stop him from dying, under the threat of the rebels that had carried him there. Whilst the king was entertaining the rustic army, a few of the other king's men went to the hospital, seized Tyler, who was almost dead, and dragged him outside, where they beheaded him. The leader of the revolution was dead, and the king and his men had won. To show their power, 
the head of Watt was carried to Clerkenwell and presented to the king. His knights held Tyler's head aloft as a warning of what would happen next if they didn't concede. By this time, the rebels were tired, hungry and defeated. After what was executed, a messenger was sent back within the city walls with news of what was happening, and the opportunity was seized to overthrow the rebels. Reinforcements were sent to bolster the king's army, suddenly outnumbering the remaining rustics, forcing them to retreat. After just two weeks of rioting, the rebels begrudgingly accepted that they'd lost and conceded. The king's men carried Tyler's head to be displayed on London Bridge in place of Sudbury and Hales, showing to others that the class war was over. The king had won. Subsequently, Simon Sudbury's head was sent back to the parish he was the bishop of, and although his body is buried in Canterbury Cathedral, with a cannonball marking the place where his head should be inside his coffin, his actual head still remains on display in St George's Church in Sudbury, complete with parts of the mummified skin which show the brutality of his beheading. Over the next week or so, pockets of rebels up and down the country were hunted down, arrested or executed. What had been such a promising change for the rustics was all thwarted at the last moment. In retaliation to the revolt, the king retracted almost all of the agreements he had made in the past two weeks and issued warrants for the arrests of those involved. Now back home and much easier to catch and arrest, the peasants were entirely defeated and it was as if the past fortnight of freedom had never happened. The king came down hard on those involved in the revolt and warrants were passed for knights to hunt down those involved. Hundreds of men were executed, but the women, perhaps needed to continue to bolster the population, were spared the noose and received only the lightest of punishments. After many of the rustics had been hanged, drawn and quartered, the king continued to punish those that had been spared the noose. He imposed even harsher rules upon the rustics to punish them for their bad behaviour and for daring to threaten the crown. The leaders of the revolt, which weren't killed in battle, were also hunted down, arrested and brought to face trial in a very public court. John Ball, the socialist preacher, was captured, but as he was a man of the clergy, he was allowed a trial where he could speak and put forward his version of events. But the trial was over before it started, and even though John protested he was acting on behalf of the people, this was a convenient way to get rid of him, to stop him from preaching his messages, which the church didn't agree with. John was convicted and subsequently hanged, drawn and quartered in the town square in St Albans. But what happened to the man who started the rebellion, Thomas Baker? Well, he too didn't escape the hangman's noose. He too was given a trial, but not allowed to speak, and rather unsurprisingly, he was sentenced and too suffered being hanged, drawn and quartered. The only leader of the rebels who did evade capture was Abel Kerr. He disappeared, perhaps fleeing overseas, and was never heard from again. As executions and punishments spread across the land, the rustics were now in a worse position than they started, and it seemed that all was lost. However, over the next few years, things did start to slowly change. With the threat of another uprising always looming, 
the authorities had to bear in mind that things would need to change to stop this from happening again. If people believed the government to be slowly shifting towards a better world for them, this would keep them in line. The original laws around serfdom were now able to be bent, so rustics could buy their freedom from landowners, giving them the ability to set up their own farms, and trade became freer, allowing people to sell their wares outside of their own parish, allowing them for the first time to have an income which didn't go straight to their employers. Slowly over time, serfdom became obsolete, and even though it wasn't as dramatic and overnight as the rustics would have liked, eventually they got their own way. Oh, and the pesky poll tax. Strangely enough, that never reared its head in medieval England ever again. On paper, the peasants' revolt looked like a complete failure, but in fact, it helped those in power to comprehend their fellow man, to see them as clever, organised and tactical. It humanised those they had treated for so long with such disdain for their well-being and helped to cement their rights for years to come. The authorities learned a valuable lesson over the hot summer of 1381, that those that giveth could also taketh away, and that even though the rustics lost the battle, they would eventually win the war. it we made it that was a beast to research and write and i did end up cutting out some bits just for time as otherwise it would have been its own mini series but if you like this kind of deep dive on history then let me know as i love making them so if you want more then i can most definitely do that as always i'd love to know your thoughts on this one so do please leave me a comment on youtube or on my social media if you're listening to the podcast Whilst you are here, if you wouldn't mind giving the video a thumbs up or the show a rating on your podcast provider, then I'll be eternally grateful. It's so helpful with the pesky algorithm, and at the moment it seems like things I'm making aren't getting pushed as much as they once were, so um, if you could just spread the word, um, I would be eternally grateful. Thank you very much for doing that, because it would really help me to know that I'm not just shouting into the void of the internet on a regular basis. If you are new around here and you've not yet subscribed and you've made it to this point in the episode, then what are you doing? Just hit that subscribe button or the follow on your podcast provider and come and join the Ghoul Gang. We're a friendly bunch and we seem to be growing in numbers, so um, do come and join us. Also, if you do like the show and you'd like to support what I do to help me make more of them, then why not consider becoming a patron like these amazing legendary executive Patreon producers, Amy, Barry, Bethan, Jess, Kate, Mary, Ren, Sam, Sarah and Veronica and all of our other patrons too. Patrons get an exclusive show from me once a month, you get to vote on what episodes I make next, and also depending on the tier, you'll get some tangible goodies through the post too. So if that sounds like something you'd enjoy, then please come and join us. If you're not up for a long-term commitment and you'd just like to buy me a coffee or something from the Amazon wishlist, which helps me with my research, then there's one-off donation links in the description too, or you can use the ACAST supporter link at the beginning of the podcast, or the thanks button underneath my video on YouTube. Thank you so much for even considering to do any of that. It really means the world. Now, I don't want to hawk more things at you, but having said that, I'm just about to. I now have a link to my Amazon shop, which is in the show notes. So um, if there's anything that you're interested in equipment wise from the show and you want to maybe think about starting your own podcast or YouTube channel, then please check that out because all the links are there. And also there's just stuff that I really enjoy at the moment or things that I just use on a regular basis. So if you're interested in being nosy and knowing what I buy on Amazon, then do take a look at that. Um, if you do purchase anything from there, then I get a small kickback. So thank you very much. 
Thank you for joining me for another tale from London's past. I've been Nikki Druce, and I'll see you ghouls next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.